Hello, everybody. We're here with Kylo Ren's taller, more evil brother, Cordy Moto. What's up, man? Hey, not much. How's it going? <laughs> Pretty good. So, uh, for anybody that heard our interview last time, uh, it was a nightmare and it was my fault. Um, I used the wrong compressor on his voice, and he sounded like Kylo Ren or Bane from Batman or whatever you would like to say. So, uh, yeah, well, welcome back, and this time is going to be way, way better for audio. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I figured I would uh, come prepared just in case. Yeah. But uh, right. I'm gonna take this off because I can't uh, I can't see anything without <laughs> my glasses. So um, I haven't done interviews in uh, consistently in a while, only because it's just my schedule's been nuts, and I really want to get back into it because I miss doing these. And you were the first person that I contacted because I felt like I, well, two reasons. I felt like I owed you one for screwing up your voice by accident last time. Um, and, you know, when you go through Skype, it's so hard to do these things because at the moment, OBS isn't able to record two different channels. So, like, yeah. it, it in a perfect world, I would record me as left, you as right, and then if there was an issue with volumes, no problem. Just hit the mixer afterwards and export as mono, but I couldn't do it. That was just the best, the best that you could get in that situation. So... Uh, the other reason I wanted you back is because I knew who you were. I knew your work last time. I'd followed you. Everything I said was true. I just didn't know the extent of your work. So, like, I knew of everything that you did on Zeldix. I didn't realize that was your website. So, well, well, I I'm the owner of it now, but it was transferred to me from uh, from Seth, who was one of the original guys who worked on Parallel Worlds. Mm -hmm. The site was originally created as a private forum, basically for the two of them and a couple other folks to collaborate on that project mm -hmm. so that they could uh, have a place to document stuff and work. And after Seth went on and did uh, Conker's Hyrule Tale, uh, he was kind, that was kind of the end of what he needed it for. And he was paying for it and he didn't really want to keep it up. So he was looking for somebody to kind of take the reins. So. Uh -huh. I so I'm I'm running it now, but it it wasn't necessarily mine to begin with. Okay, so I think we should just go back to the beginning for uh, if anybody didn't hear the first one or or stopped the first interview because it was <laughs> too bad quality. Uh, so you are Ben, aka Cordy Moto, um, yep. and you have been working on everything from MSU on audio hacks to a board that uh, a, a newer, easier way to get the correct clock speed out of a Super Game Boy. That's been around forever, but it started out as a, a wad of wires and awfulness and everything else. Uh, so yeah. I guess I guess go back to the beginning, if you will, and you know what got you into all this stuff. Oh man, uh, well, really, what what started it all was I wanted to build myself a repro of Parallel Worlds. Like I hadn't done any hardware stuff. I hadn't done any uh, assembly language stuff. I uh, I was going to school just for software, so I'd done a lot of C and C++ and some Java and some of that stuff, but I really hadn't done anything in the in the SNES stuff. And really what started my, my interest in all of this was wanting to build a repro of Parallel Worlds. And so... So Parallel Worlds from, was Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past that was completely and totally redone as a new game that most casual players would call impossibly and maddeningly, maddeningly, yeah, 
it enrages people. I don't know why I can't say that yes. word today. Maybe I haven't drank enough yet, but <laughs> um, yeah. So that's uh, that's something that I tried when it first came out through emulation, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't get more than an hour and a half into it. So at this point, you mm-hmm. just wanted to make a repro of it for yourself, for use on original yeah, hardware. Yeah, because I wanted to play it on an original hardware. At that point, I didn't have a flash card or anything, and uh, I was looking around at how much people were charging for repros and like how terrible the quality was. Like, like if you think back five or six years, at you know before things like Voltar Super Stacker were even an, right. uh, even a possibility, you had people pulling out these old bit rotting EPROMs and like soldering them in with wires, even on the dip parts like it was yeah. 30 wires for a for a 20 pin part and you know I, it, it was awful and i was looking at it i was like this is garbage and not only is it garbage they're charging so much for it i could do this mm. and that kind of just got me started down down the whole path it, it even led to me picking up a, a second major uh i actually ended up finding that i enjoyed the electronic side of things and and went into uh hardware so uh, i'm doing uh, hardware and software degrees. So that's really cool. So do you have a, an electrical engineering degree or do you not, not electrical engineering. Uh, that got a little bit more in depth than I really wanted to go. Um, so it's actually a computer engineering, mm-hmm. which is kind of, uh, we, we kind of touch on the hardware, like the physical circuit building and stuff like that. And then, uh, also did like some HDL stuff, mm-hmm. uh, I, I only ended up going for the associates in that because I've been working full time and putting myself through school and trying to do that and do two degrees. I got to the point where I was like, I would like to actually graduate and get out of here instead <laughs> of being here another eight years. And but yeah, so I did a lot of that stuff and and I and I enjoyed it. So that background um, makes a lot of sense on how you're able to do so such wildly different projects. Then that makes more sense mm-hmm. now. I mean, not that. Not that people can't do that. It's just rare that you see people go through the whole range of stuff. Um, but yeah, that's cool that you tie that into both work and, and fun. So yeah, yeah the, you, the do... downside is that I start fifty projects and then never finish any of them. Yeah, well, that's very common, and um, in, in fact, it's just common period in life that so many people do that, especially in the retro gaming world. <laughs> I try not to talk about stuff anymore unless it's like. Uh, Unless it's a sure thing or as close to a sure thing as humanly possible or anything. So, yeah, yeah. It's a, I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what what did you actually end up doing to make that original repro? Uh, so I use the TSOP 48, um, I think it's the M29F flash chip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I actually learned how to use Eagle. I learned how to design all of the parts and boards and stuff and made my own little uh, dip to TSOP adapter. And I used that. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's pretty neat. Yeah. So what made you want to start the work that you did on Parallel Worlds? Did you just make your own repro of it, start playing it, and go, this is <laughs> this is too crazy? Or Um... Now I'm trying to remember back to this, this was a while ago. Trying to actually remember how things went. So I think what what started out was that I got involved over at Zeldix, mm-hmm. and uh, then Khan, the guy who wrote the original MSU one mm-hmm. uh, Zelda hack, at least the original one that was ever released. There mm-hmm. were a couple of 
people who kind of teased them and then never released. But so Khan made was making a whole bunch of like small individual patches for little quality of life things. He took, for example, the uh, the Pegasus boots from ancient stone tablets where you can actually turn while you're running. And he ported that code over to the original Link to the Past. He he did some item upgrades. He made it so that you when you don't have a sword, you can like you can punch mm-hmm. and stun enemies, kind of like with the boomerang. And I, I took a bunch of these patches that he had just put, uh, he'd just taken and, and made them all separate and uh, combined them all and just put them into the vanilla game, just kind of as a quality of life update to the original game. And I called it uh, Link DX. to the Past D- DX. Yeah, yeah that's my go-to version that. when I play it now, by the way. It still is. Oh, cool. Yeah, I also put the MSU one in there, so... Yeah, so it was kind of like everything that that looked like it was useful in the original game without completely changing the original game. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted it to feel like the original game with just the quality of life stuff. And then after playing that a bunch, I went and was playing Parallel Worlds and realized that I kind of wished I had those same quality of life improvements in Parallel Worlds. Mm-hmm. So I started by just porting those over and then realized that uh, there was other stuff that I could do. And I just started digging into it and started doing bug fixes. Um, and and it just kind of turned into a, a really huge project that eventually became Parallel Worlds 1.2. And there's some new bugs in 1.2 that I really need to go back and fix and put out a 1.3. But that's one of those projects that, like I said, I pick up 50 projects and then never finish them. So, But they're not game-breaking bugs, if I remember correctly, right? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. There, There's a couple of really weird uh, overworld tiles up near the, in the uh, Sky Isles, where mm-hmm. I was trying to, I was trying to fix another overworld area and accidentally overwrote, t- I thought I had checked everywhere to make sure that those tiles weren't actually used, and it turns out they were. So I wasn't very careful with that. Uh, I don't think they're game breaking. Somebody else put out an, a patch that they called 1.3, and that one does have some game breaking bugs in it. I don't know who put it out. I I don't know what changes they made, but like they broke some entrances where you walk into a room, and the game just soft locks. Okay, so, so anybody that wants to play Parallel Worlds, uh, stick with version 1.2. And isn't it the the full think, title Parallel Worlds Remodeled Version 1.2? Okay, no. Remodeled is actually a different thing by Puzzle Sorry. Dude, where he actually <laughs> he actually changed the dungeons to make okay. them a little bit simpler. Um, and actually, Puzzle Dude also put out a version that he called 1.23, and I think that's the version I would actually suggest. He reverted a couple of... I think he fixed or reverted the, the overworld thing and a couple of other things, so... Um, so for I people that want to play Parallel Worlds, say. there's Parallel Worlds version 1.23 which is Puzzle Dude's version of your 1.2 with some fixes. And then there's also Parallel Worlds Remodeled, which is the one, which is Parallel Worlds with slightly easier dungeons. Yep. So is is 1.2, I remember the last time we talked, I think you said it was something like a 20-hour game for the Parallel Worlds, for especially somebody just playing it for the first time. Somebody playing for the first time, it might take you longer than that, just depending on how many times you die. Um... I think it took me. I think it took me about twenty hours when I was doing my playtest run through, uh, and I tried to basically a hundred percent the. I tried to hundred percent the game, 
And that took me about a, about 20 hours with my knowledge of kind of where everything was. Wow. So if you okay. don't, yeah. That's a much larger I think game. That, <laughs> I think, I, I think that's, I think that's how long it took. I don't, I don't remember. This was several years ago. So maybe it took me more like 10. I, I don't remember. I would have to go back and, and look at my, my YouTube channel to actually see the, the length. Because I think the longest I've ever gone without actually playing through A Link to the Past, the original game, um, I think it was like six years or something before, you know, between completing it. And I think it had taken me like 15 hours to do that. Um, and then maybe a year and a half after that, uh, I went back with, uh, when I got my Sony PVM and BVM monitors, I said, all right, now, you know, i got to experience the game again. And then it took me eight so it was almost double the time when I had forgotten most things about it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it could be a much, much bigger or a much longer game for people to want to experience it. You know, it's that and the the parallel tower dungeon itself is just huge and it's really long and there's a lot of bosses and you'll probably die a lot of times and you have to do it multiple times. And that's that's a huge amount of the time in the game mm. uh, is just the parallel tower itself. Is it like a death run where you have to do it all, you know, without dying to, in order to get through all the bosses? I think so. That that was one of the changes that I was trying to make was um, trying to make it so that some of the bosses didn't respawn every time because most of the bosses in that tower were set to respawn every time you enter the room. And so, yeah, it it was just, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, I, um, there was a few games that I've played over the years that I never, I never beat even though I got all the way to the end just because it was these grueling death runs of you know you have to the boss respawns in three different forms and you have to learn and memorize all the controls and the moves of the first one and then they change to a different form and you have to keep practicing through all those so you end up spending three or four hours on one little segment to get through them all and i just i don't have time anymore for that so yeah i would yeah. if i had played this up till now i probably would have given up at the tower point and what's even worse is the cane of Burna becomes basically almost a required item, but it's in the light world in a really hard to find place and you can actually miss it, end up getting transported to the icy world and then you can't go back and get it until you've basically beaten everything. Oh, and so okay. that's something that I didn't manage to get into 1.2, but that's one of my plans for 1.3. And I think Puzzle Dude might have done it for 1.23. Um he put it somewhere different than what I was planning to do, but uh, to basically put it in both places where you could get it in the in the light world or the icy world, uh, depending on which one you get to first. So in, in remodeled, is that you know the dungeons are a little bit easier uh, and the cane fix, but are there other things about it that make it easier. Well, the cane, I think the cane fix is also in parallel worlds one point two three. I think. Um. I'm not 100% sure. I haven't actually played through 1.23. I'm just trying to remember where, where he posted on, on Zeldix about what he was doing. So if I, ever, uh, if I ever get a vacation, maybe that'll be, you know, maybe that'll be my thing as I just spend a few hours a day and go through the original Parallel Worlds and enjoy it. Um, so for people that want a more traditional Zelda experience, and especially if you haven't played A Link to the Past in a long time, uh, I'd absolutely always gush over the DX version. Because you do have some enhancements, like you could turn while running. Um, and could you talk a little bit more about what you added to that for just the DX? We'll we'll talk about the MSU one in a second. Um, give me a second. It's been several years since I've done anything with that. Let me actually pull it up on my computer, and I can actually list off what's in uh, 
what's in that one. So for yeah, for yeah, people yeah. listening while you're looking this up, um, basically it's the same game. So there's no major changes. There's nothing that would take away from the original, at least in my opinion. And there, although the turning with the Pegasus boots, I do feel like it makes the game flow a little bit faster. It doesn't make anything in the game easier. It's not like you could skip stuff because of it. So you're certainly not yeah. cheating through it. I really do agree with the quality of life uh, nomenclature for it. You know, it's the same game, just a little bit better. Yeah, that okay. So I've got it pulled up. Uh, I would say the the Pegasus boots are probably the most controversial issue. They're, that's the one that people kind of complain about the most. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, some people just don't like it. But okay, so what I've got here is uh, you can break pots with your sword, which is something you can do in like all the other Zelda games, but mm -hmm. for some reason you can't do it in this one. Um, that one actually causes um, there's a couple of dash bonks that you can't do as a result, but they're not they're not required or they're not like really useful for the most part. So I'm it doesn't I'm prevent you from getting an item or going past the yeah. place in the game. Cause usually, yeah. Cause usually you can bonk off of a pot and it'll, it'll throw you back and you can use that to jump across a gap. Mm -hmm. But now that you can break the pots with your sword, now you dash into them and you end up breaking them instead. Um, you can also collect items with your sword, which is another thing you can do in a lot of, uh, a lot of newer games. Uh, you just swing your sword and it acts kind of like the boomerang where any, any items that it, uh, that it, uh, contacts it'll pick them up uh let's see you can it i changed how the death counter works so it's actually just a death counter and it doesn't count uh like saving quits in the when you get to the end of the game and it tells you how many games you played I, right uh uh yeah so, so that, that only, is legitimately now just how many times you've died now how many times that you ran out of time and just hit save and quit so yeah yeah i didn't and even then, realize that was a thing in the original one to be honest with you yeah, I I didn't either until I saw that Conan made a patch for it, and then I realized that oh yeah, that's something I would like because that that makes more sense to me. Uh, you can switch your items with L and R. So oh. you, if you press if you press L or R, it'll actually just uh, cycle through your your Y button item. Um, uh, it's converted to fast ROM, so that reduces some slowdown. Could you explain then, a little bit about how that works? Because uh, I think a lot of people listening might be might have just perked up when you said that. Because uh, I only know the basics around that. So, so for the most part, it's not going to make the game run faster when it's when it's running properly. So it's not going to feel like you're playing the game in fast forward. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically, what what happens is that in some places, so many things are happening on screen that you get lag. Mm -hmm. And and the game starts to slow down. Things like uh, using bombos or or certain bosses when there's a lot of sp or when there's a lot of sprites on screen. The cane of Samaria is a really big one, or not cane of, the cane of Burna. Anytime you use the cane of Burna, it just lags like crazy because of all the little sparkle sprites that it's spawning is that that spin around you, and then trying to calculate the the circular motion of those of those sparkles. Uh, so fast ROM. The, the original game was created using slow, a slow ROM chip, which means that I don't remember the exact numbers, so I won't, I won't try and, and come up with those numbers off the top of my head. But basically, there's a flag in the game header that tells the game, hey, this, we're using a slow ROM chip, 
So you need to slow down when you're trying to read data from the ROM. And so it actually does. It actually reads the data slower. So converting to fast ROM, basically you, you change that bit in the header and then you have to change a whole bunch of other things as well uh, in some of the addresses that you're jumping to. And basically you jump to a fast ROM address instead of jumping to the slow ROM address. And in doing so, basically you tell the, the uh, CPU, okay, this is actually a, a fast ROM that can support being accessed at this higher speed, so you can go ahead and run at the higher speed. It's not nearly as much of a speed up as something like, say, the SA1 hacks mm -hmm. for things like Gradius, but it definitely does help by something like, I want to say like 30% or something like that. Oh, wow. And running I, I think it through something like the SD to SNES or SD to SNES Pro, would, uh, or, or even making your own repro with the faster ROM would be able to take advantage of that. Yes, correct. And I'll, uh, yeah, pretty much any, any flash ROM should be able to do it. I believe for like an EEPROM or something, you need to make sure that it's able to run at, I think it's 120 nanosecond access time. Uh, some some of the older EEPROMs might not be able to do that if you're using old EEPROMs for that. But yeah, the SD to SNES can definitely do it. And and there's still other bottlenecks in the in the game. Some of the game code isn't as efficient as it could be, and and sometimes it's just trying to do too much. So it's not going to fix everything, but it's just one thing that's fairly straightforward to add to the the game code to try and improve things. Do you think an SA1 patch for this is possible or even useful? I think it's absolutely possible because uh, Link to the Past doesn't use any other special chips. The question is, I, I don't know how useful it would be, and I, I, I don't see why, why you couldn't do it, though. Interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe I'll ping Vitor after this and see if he's interested in seeing what it would do. I'll ask him to take the DX version, of course, but... Huh. I'm always interested to see, interested and fascinated by people that take things that are still designed to be run on original hardware and make those experiences better. And that's what I love about all this stuff is even if you choose not to use the SD to SNES and you pick up um, like a, a cheap, like I think there's one golf game that uses an SA1 chip uh, and you could use like the Super Stacker or something. And I believe the Real Phoenix just came out with another adapter as well to help for things like this. Um, so that's, yeah, the, that's the super killer. stacker wouldn't work on that on that cart, but uh, but yeah, the, the real Phoenix made a board that would do it. I'm I'm working on a board right now that would do it. Um, yeah, it would. Uh, you can definitely do a, a lot of really cool stuff with the original hardware. And you also did um, uh, you and did you do an MSU one hack for that, or were you just helping Con with that? For for, for what? Zelda, uh, for the Zelda DX, because I know Khan put out the original orchestral Zelda soundtrack, and then I somebody put out the soundtrack from uh, A Link Between Worlds. That was me. Yeah, that was you. Okay, and you ported that to it. I like both. I um I don't know. I, out of all three, original orchestral on that one, I'm really not sure which I like better. Uh, I, think I think there might be like six or seven for Link to the Past at this point. Uh, I've done at least yeah. two or three. I I did a, a metal guitar I soundtrack that. for it yeah. that sounds really awesome. Uh, there's one by a guy named the the Synergist, mm -hmm. 
I believe he's the one who did the Link to the Past Demastered, where he did a cover of the whole OST that sounds like Game Boy soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty killer. I I liked all those. I think for me, um, it was always the the orchestral I liked with uh, the Ancient Stone Tablets, the the very last release where you're still playing in real time and everything with the voiceovers and all that. It was still incredible to me. And I I don't really know which one I had. I don't know if I have a favorite for the original Link to the Past because uh, there you know that soundtrack is amazing as is. So it's kind of hard, but the good thing about these is the save games work with all of them. So if you want to switch mm-hmm. between them, just rename the save game, and you could you could yep. play your game throughout many different soundtracks if you'd like. Well, if you're using obviously an SD to SNES, certainly not with a homemade repro. But yeah. now there was also a version floating around that had some like cartoony intro in the beginning. Do you remember mm-hmm. where that came from? Because I think I I don't know if I put together a version of DX or if I just found one. That had the orchestral soundtrack and that, but it looked like the cartoon, but it wasn't the cartoon, right? Uh, yeah, I don't remember where that where that FMV was actually sourced from. I know Khan was the one who did the code for it, but I I don't know where he got the the original source video. I I remember looking this up at one point because so many of us were curious. I don't remember what I found. Um, it wasn't part of the CDI version. It was something, no. but. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. That's the, cool. The animation was a lot better than the CDI version. Yes, absolutely. If Yehel from Wrestling with Gaming is, is listening to this, he's going to be very angry, swearing at wherever he's listening at the moment. But unfortunately, that's correct. But that is my favorite to show people. Whenever I want to show off what could be done, I take out the SD to SNES, I put out that version, and then there's the cartoon intro and then the DX version with the orchestral soundtrack, and it blows people away. Even people that were... As long as you had experienced the SNES in its original form at one point, you get blown away by this. It's obviously, if you've never seen a SNES before and you're used to modern games, I imagine that wouldn't be impressive. But anybody at any skill level, at any you know, and any love for this stuff, comparing it to the original, they all freak out. So it's awesome that we have the ability to do this these days. Yeah. So on to the you know on to some of the more recent projects. The one that kind of blew up in a good way for you was the uh, the clock mod for Super Game Boy, which is something that's been out, but I don't think there's been very many elegant solutions for it. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? No. Sure. Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely something that I had seen floating around, and everyone that I saw was uh, pretty pretty rough to to put it nicely for one thing you had to actually lift pins off of the cpu uh it's a surface mount chip and you had to lift up two of the pins and there are two pins that are sitting right next to each other and then after you lift them you actually had to solder wires to those two pins that are right next to each other and most people would then run really long wires which is not what you want to do with a clock crystal no uh and then they would just like put a clock crystal on a little piece of perf board and then hot glue it in the, in the board and, or in, inside the case. And it just didn't look very good. And then I learned about the super game boy commander controller, which has a couple of really cool features. And yeah, one that's of those, the, that's fe- the one from Hori, right? Where it's actually, yeah, uh... I, th- I think, I think they're the one, well, I think Hori actually developed the super game boy too. I, like if you, there's a hidden credits that you can get into with a with a button press and in the credits, Hori is credited in the in there. So 
I don't know if they're just credited because of the, the SGB commander controller or if they actually had something to do with the development of the, the SGB itself. Mm. But so for anybody who doesn't know what what this is all about, basically the original Game Boy runs at a clock speed that is uh, I, f- I forget exactly what it is. It's four mega. It's a little bit over four megabytes or megabytes. A little over four megahertz. And I'll get the exact numbers. But, uh, you keep. It's going. a power of two. Like uh, yeah. So if you do two to the power of whatever until you get to four million, then uh, that'll be your number. And and so that's a a pretty standard clock speed. You can get those clock crystals anywhere. Uh, but for the Super Game Boy, they have an I.O. chip that does the translation between the the controller from the Super NES as well as transferring the video data to the the Super NES, and it runs at five times the speed of the Game Boy. So it needs a much faster clock, which it then divides by five in order to pass off to the Game Boy CPU. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just found on the site uh, retrorgb.com forward slash Super Game Boy. Uh, Game Boy systems run at a clock speed of 4.194 megahertz. Technically, it's like 4.194.304. And the Super Game Boy runs at 4.295.454. So it's actually, when you're talking about clock speeds, that's quite a difference. Um, Mm -hmm. And I believe the Super Game Boy 2... Uh, runs at the original clock speed of 4.194. So it, uh, it is the same exact speed as the original. Yep. And so the, the issue is that uh, that 5x speed that they need for that I.O. chip is not, a standard, uh, is not a standard speed because it's not that power of 2. It's a power of 2, and then it's times 5, mm-hmm. which is just kind of a weird number, basically. So... They they looked at it and they said, okay, this is this is pretty close to the Super NES's system clock. Instead of I think it's twenty point nine, uh, yeah, twenty point nine or something like that is the the five x speed it's supposed to be. We have twenty one point four. They're like, oh, that's that's close enough. We'll just use that instead of making a custom crystal, and it worked. It just ran too fast. And depending on whether or not whether you've got a, a NTSC or a PAL version, it ran at two completely different speeds because they also have two different speeds depending on if you're NTSC or PAL. So these earlier, uh, well, okay. So one other cool thing about that I/O chip is because it receives in a fast clock and then divides it down, it actually has the ability to speed up or slow down the clock that it sends to the Game Boy CPU. So you can play. Uh, you can play the the Super Game Boy games in slow motion, or you can fast forward them, and that's a feature that the SGB Commander controller implements because it actually sends the command to say do the fast forward, do the slowdown, and without that controller, you you can't uh, you can't do that. So a lot of people don't even know that that's something that exists. So the problem with these other clock mods that lift the pins and wire it in that actually breaks the, the the SGB commander because now the IO chip is no longer sending a clock signal to the CPU. You're giving it its own clock that's completely separate. Mm-hmm. So um, 
So I looked into it and I was like, this, you know, these, these other mods, they're, they're ugly, but it's a really, it's a really simple thing to do if you can get your hands on the right crystal to, to send it, which that was difficult because like I said, it's not a standard one. It's not one that you can just go out and buy. Um, so how did you find but, it? So I was able to find, uh, well, so what I ended up using was I ended up using a PLL, which is a chip that is able to take a clock signal and multiply it. Clock dividing is really easy. Clock multiplying is actually pretty complex, but there are chips that will just do it. It turns out that the original 4.1 megahertz clock is actually too slow for almost all of the PLLs that I was looking into. So that, you know, I, I thought I hit a wall and I was like, oh, well, it was a good idea, but it's just not going to work. But then I found one place that sold a clock that uh, clock crystal that was two times the original speed. So it was that power of two times two. And then I found a PLL that'll do 2.5 times and you can, you put the two together and now you've got your five X that you needed. Hmm. And then for making the, the PCB to actually wire it all up, I was actually inspired by one of uh Bordy's boards. Uh, it was his SD to SNES op amp mod for the MSU one audio for the old versions. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, his, his board did something that I'd never seen before. Like I, I knew that PCB edge castellations were a thing where you have the little plated half holes on the edge of the board and you can use that to solder to, um, to pads on a, on a surface mount board. But I had never, I, for whatever reason, I only thought of that in like rectangular boards and you put them on the edge. I had never thought, to build a weird irregular shaped board to place those castellations over components mm -hmm. on an existing board. And so when he did that, uh, it, it just kind of like clicked in my head that this was something that I could do. And so I used that idea to build the, the Super Game Boy clock mod in a way that was really easy to install. That's awesome. I love stuff like that. I love creative, out of you know, out of the box ways of of solving problems that you know before. <clears throat> yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to add anything to this video because I certainly don't want to put any negativity. But just Google some of the old clock mods, and uh, you know they're equal to, if not worse than the old ROM hacks that you used to have, the repros. Because while it's the same ball of wires, and sometimes just like somebody snotted a thing, a hot glue all over it. You also have to remember whenever you're doing clock wires around a board, that could in, there's so much that can go wrong with that. I'll try to skip to the end and not nerd out for 10 minutes just on wire routing, but it's very bad if you run those clock wires in the wrong place or you know too long, something like that. Yeah, and too too long is actually a, a big deal when you're dealing with uh, with clocks in particular because you don't think about it, but. Um, why uh, a wire acts like a capacitor and putting a capacitor on there actually changes the speed of the crystal which unfortunately is something that i actually just discovered this past week was happening with with my mod boards um yeah so my my mod boards i i just built a really cool test rig so that i can actually test the the final things and and view the output speeds out to six significant figures now before I was only able to do out to four. And I discovered that because I picked a particular capacitor instead of a different capacitor, I was out by 
at at the fifth decimal place i had an error that was just just slightly out of what what i was aiming for in terms of the accuracy so so for anybody who has purchased a board before before now i'm i'm trying to get a hold of them and and tell them the value of capacitor that they can swap out um it only makes it basically it makes a difference of one frame every two and a half minutes so it's about it's about on the same order of magnitude as say like the super nt zero lag mode okay so that's and, yeah it's know, not a huge it's not anything though. that's it's not anything that's perceptible it would only really make a difference if you were a speedrunner that was at like a high level where you know half a second over the course of two hours was actually going to make a difference in a in a run mm. yeah so i'm um... not too worried about it so I, I love making sure, I guess there's two comments I have about that. Uh, first of all, I love making sure things are always in place for speedrunners, because that accomplishes two things. Now you're, you're helping out a very fun and exciting hobby. I do like watching some of the speedruns, especially when like some of those YouTube channels cuts it down to a nice 10-minute video that you can watch and enjoy. But, you know, that that's cool that we get to help those groups of people, but it also helps preserve the originality of the whole experience. Because it's so easy to get lost in enhancements, which I love. I have no problem with that. But we, we, there always should be a nod to the original experience, even if you don't think it might matter. At some point, it might. So I, I mm-hmm. love that. I love that people like you are going through, the, jumping through the hoops to do that. And also, you know, you, you're making me smile when you're talking about these problems. Because I'm, I guess you could describe me as an expert in nothing, but I know a little bit about a lot of stuff. Which is kind of what my jobs always had to be, you know, throughout life, and even now with retro RGB. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into stuff where it's like, "But I did everything right. Everything's exactly the way it's supposed to be." And then it's usually Steve from HD Retrovision will just shake his head at me, like you know, like a disapproving grandfather, like, "But you forgot about the resistance of the wires." Like, no. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah, that's that's a funny story, just because. Because of all the different points it hits. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's now available on Tindy still, right? The, the yep. That board. And what do you think yep. the skill level for installation would be for somebody for that? So the installation skill level on that is is very low. I That one's very simple, very easy to install. Um, so if you could do something I, like a Super Nintendo RGB mod, you could probably pull this off as well. I think so, yeah. Okay. You... You have to remove three surface mount. I hope I hope I didn't lose anything. My computer just my screen's blanked out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. So you have you, to remove three surface mount components. Right, uh, and that's. Do you need to save those components and reuse them, or do you no. just need to remove them? So that's just pretty easy. And in fact, just like a quick soldering tip, I have that Kesker gun that uh, Voltar did the video on that I I just. I can't stop raving about this thing. It makes my skill level back to like, you know, what it should be for somebody who's been soldering as long as I have. And I love the wedge tip, and I just place the wedge tip right in the side of the component, and then just kind of wiggle it off. But very often that component goes shooting across my desk, and I never see it again. Right, let me put this yeah. back. But so yeah, that's... the other thing you can do that helps a lot is you can just. Uh, just take some new solder wire and you just kind of flood the solder onto it until you've got enough to just kind of short across both terminals. Mm-hmm. And then that makes it really easy to heat both up at the same time. And then you just kind of wipe the thing off. Make sure you don't, make sure you don't have a short on the pads after you leave them. 
Yeah, yeah, but, true. So. But yeah, so you just have to uh, you remove three components and then you solder down four four little surface mount uh, points that all should line up properly with the board, and then you should be good to go. Sounds. I have I have another board that adds the link port. Uh, because the, that's another thing that the Super Game Boy had that the original didn't was the Link port. The Super uh, Game Boy I think, 2, the Japanese version had. Right, the, the Super Game Boy didn't. 2 had it that the original didn't. And I think part of that is because of the clock speed issue because I don't think... I, I haven't actually tried it, but I don't think that... I think you would get desyncs, basically, if you had two consoles running at, at different speeds mm -hmm. and trying to do the Link port between them. So I have the uh, the Link port mod, and that one... Uh, requires a bit more skill because th that you actually do have to solder to the pins on the CPU. But I have created a flex PCB adapter that hopefully should make that a lot easier. Oh, cool. That basically lays down on top of the pins and you just solder it across all of the pins all at once. And then it just breaks out the ones that you need into six little uh, parallel pads that you can actually solder together with just a like a ribbon wire like this, that it's it's spaced out, you know. So it's kind of like Gordy's adapter for the N64. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lot like that. It's a, it's awesome to see people getting into flex cable technology these days. Whereas five six years ago, this was unheard of. You'd never see anybody do that. The fact that Oshpark started offering flex is huge. The the fact that I can go and and just order three of them and get them at a, a reasonable price mm -hmm. with that. Right now, the the one issue that I have with Oshpark on their Flex is that I think they don't get very many orders of it yet because it's still really new. And so it takes them a long time to fill up a panel. And I the the last, based on the two times that I've ordered, um, or maybe three, it's taken about an, a month turnaround for that. But, but the price uh, is still other, wildly uh, different than a lot of other places would have been. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I like I was finding, I was finding places that were quoting me twelve bucks per board at a quantity of like five hundred. Like at wow. a quantity of five hundred, you should be for for a little adapter that's like that big. It shouldn't be anywhere close to that. Yeah, you know, that's crazy. So I I don't know if maybe I checked the wrong boxes on the the like quote form of these are the features that I need because there's like it's a full page with thirty different check boxes and drop downs and who, so maybe I checked the wrong box and but yeah the the prices were crazy so I wish OSH Park had some kind of some kind of better way to say like you know the minimum order is three but hey, based on the size and shape of your design, if you order seven, we could do that on one panel. So, like, or, or maybe 20, whatever the number might be, but I just, there's been many times that I ordered from them that it took, I mean, it took about a month. I had, I have these adapter boards coming that I ordered three weeks ago that still aren't here yet, that if I mm. ordered from JCL PCV, they would have been there four days after I placed the order, even though they're in China, and it's like, you know, mm. it drives me nuts sometimes, but I, I wish I had, they just had something, like, you know, hey, just here's the minimum you can get to be on one thing, and we'll get it out within two days. I, that would make my life a lot easier. That's one of the many reasons I don't use them anymore. Yeah, well, I, I use them for some things. Uh, like, 
basically for me, the big deal is size. I build a lot of stuff that's like like this size. This is actually one of the uh, the link port mods and stuff. This size is great at Oshpark because they have really uh, cheap prices at at about this size, and uh, they do the gold plating. They support edge castellations. Both of those, if you try and get either of those anywhere else, they immediately shoot your price way up. But those are just built in at Oshpark. Probably about the, the time you get to something like, say, an Arduino size, an Arduino shield size, that's a, roughly the point where it's going to start getting more expensive at Oshpark than if you were to go somewhere else. Hmm. But when you're prototyping uh, for stuff like this, they're great. And uh, I... I haven't had nearly as much lead time on normal boards as, as you seem to have had. It's mm. definitely a couple of weeks, but it might help that I'm on the West Coast and they're shipping from Portland. So it's just oh, a good point. It's all, so it's only like two or three days shipping with the free shipping option. Yeah, I, I try to pay attention to, to which places to go for what needs. But this last board I did was twice the size of, of yours. So the one you just mm-hmm. held up, not very big. And it's, you know, we're pushing a month now. Whereas I just got the latest triple bypass prototypes in for version two. And I think I placed the order on like a Tuesday afternoon and they arrived on Friday or something like that from JCL PCB. But no castellations, nothing crazy, just a very basic board, uh, you know, two layer board or something like that. So, you know, it's once you start to get to the craziness, I, I imagine uh, OSH Park would probably have a much better you know a better tool to use i guess is the better better way to describe yeah. it so. and i i've used uh i i use jlc pcb for my production runs uh just one thing that was uh, a real big deal for a production run is the fact that all of your boards come properly routed on all sides so you don't get the little mouse bite tabs on all the sides which is not a problem for when you're building your prototypes and you only have a few of them, but having to like file off the edges and smooth them down on a hundred boards is not something I want to do. And well, but you, your boards might require that because they have to be perfectly placed. Whereas if you have something like the triple bypass, it could be bird all the way around. It doesn't make a slightest bit of a difference. <laughs> well, it, it's not so much the, the perfect placement on that, uh, I I'm doing all of my own assembly and so I do solder stencils and I need to be able to fit it into into the little uh the stencil jig right. and so I I take the stencil jig and I tape it down to my desk and based on the actual PCB size and then if I have burrs coming off the edge it just won't fit into the jig Right, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that at all. In fact, if Jose is pro- listening to this, he's probably swearing at YouTube right now. Like, yeah, it doesn't doesn't affect you, Bob. It affects me when I'm trying to build them all. <laughs> all right, good point. I stand corrected. <laughs> yeah. So but that's what... you know that's not an issue when you're doing three of them, right? But it, it is an issue if you're trying to build fifty or a hundred. Absolutely. I mean. It... So your your Tindy page, you have a few things up on there, right? What else have you been selling? Uh, right now, I don't have very much. I right now, I've got the Super Game Boy mods, the clock mod, and the uh, the clock mod and the link port mod, and then I have Mister IO boards, just because I bought the PCBs to build my own, mm-hmm. and I'm just kind of selling off the the rest i'm populating and selling off the rest of those i'm not really looking to get into selling mr 
accessories, but I I had to buy ten of them to to get the price that I wanted for the boards. So I'm trying to sell the rest of those. I have a couple of other mods that are in you know various stages of development that I will eventually try and get up there. Um, but right now, the the really helpful thing though is that because the the Super Game Boy Clock mod has kind of taken off mm-hmm. and I've started to sell a lot of those. It's given me the ability to have some some money up front to finally invest in some of these other projects. Where mm-hmm. some of these other projects, it's it costs you know twenty or thirty bucks per prototype between the, the board and all of the parts and stuff. And oh, when I'm just doing it out of pocket, too well. <laughs> yeah, and when I'm when I'm doing it just out of my own pocket, it you know I get it to that point where it's like eighty percent of the way there. It works. I have a whole bunch of bodge wires hacked on. I have it installed in my own console and I'm like, ah, it works. So I'm just going to use it. Um, and also some of these, I w- in the past, I have just been building them for myself because before the SGB clock mod, I really hadn't sold anything. I'd sold maybe like the, the SGB clock mod, for example, before I posted it on Tindy, I, it really has been a matter of, uh, knowing where to go to sell stuff because before all I was doing was like posting on forums or on discord and stuff and being like, Hey, I've got this thing. I made it. If anybody's interested. And I think I sold like two of them in six months. Yeah. You know, eBay is, eBay is my worst nightmare and one of the greatest selling tools, both at the same time, you know, the eBay mm -hmm. treats sellers like garbage and I I get it. You know, they're trying to prevent scammers, but uh, then there's things like the, uh, the wording of your auctions. So if you put mod in your auctions, so if you sold a t-shirt that said Bob's console mod t-shirt, you might get flagged for something like that. It's just, the the rules are insane, so I understand why people wouldn't want to do that anymore. And I guess Tindy's probably a great place to sell your stuff because I don't think mm-hmm. they're as harsh about that. That and their dedicated, it's like Etsy for electronics. So right. it's just full of people that, you know, are into this kind of stuff that uh, that kind of know what they're getting into, where it's kind of hard on eBay to differentiate, hey, I'm doing good quality work, where on eBay you can find, like, repro carts all over the place, and they're probably that same spaghetti wire crap you were seeing five years ago. Yeah. Or maybe now, maybe they're just buying the super stackers just because it's easier, but, you know, it's it's hard to be like, hey, I made this clock mod and it's not like the other ones that you're seeing where you got to lift up the pins. This is this is easier. It's it works better. It's cleaner. It, it's it's hard to convey that on, on eBay auctions on eBay. What you tend to find is you, f- you find buyers who want to who want to buy something at the lowest possible price. Right. Or, or just people and, that innocently don't know any better. And eBay seems like mm-hmm. a good place to start. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have so, such mixed feelings about that. There's so many people too that if uh, that are selling retro junk, that use pictures from my site and then word it as if I was the seller, because they, they don't say they don't say it's from retro RGB, but they'll like put links to the SNES mod and you know they'll have. We did retro around. RGB's mod. Uh, yeah, something like that it drives me insane. Yeah. I try to ignore it because it just pisses me off. But there were a few times where I told people to please take all of my stuff off of there because they're terrible. And they get very upset, mm-hmm. but it's not my problem. <laughs> it's just whatever. Yeah. So probably the the next mod that I'd really like to to get 
into a, a finished and sellable state is uh, I've got this board right here. I don't know if my camera will focus. No, that's perfect. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So this is an add-on board for the NES RGB that does a handful of stuff. It does the component video conversion. Okay. But then it also outputs it for the Wii multi-out, uh, the pinout, because I... I've seen a lot of people who are doing the adding SNES style multi outs to their their NESs, and I wanted to do the the Wii multi out because it actually supports component video on the default pinout. Mm. But it does something a little weird where it actually multiplexes three of the output pins. Mm -hmm. In NTSC regions, you had S video and component, mm -hmm. and depending on which cable you plugged in it would detect which cable you plugged in and it would put that signal on those pins so if you plug in a component video cable it would give you a component if you plugged in an s video cable you get s video right in pal regions it was rgb mm -hmm. and component so this includes the uh the switching detection it the, the cable detection and the switching for that as well as uh, a stereo mixing for people who want to do the the stereo mods, um, so how do you handle I that? Because that's something that was one of the first mods I looked into before the site was even a website. When it was still just a Google Doc I was writing, um, and I was never able to get it perfect. If you add in, oh geez, sorry, can you hear that crap out there? <laughs> yeah. If uh, if you add in the Famicom expansion audio, that was always the problem that's... I had. That's something I haven't figured out yet either. So that's that's one of the things I need to figure out if I'm going to try and do this. But because a while uh, back, what I was told is that if you just take the the NES two audio channels and you run them through two pots or one pot or something, and you could, I always really like it at like fifteen to twenty percent separated. Sometimes all the way up to fifty, depending on the game. But I do like. I feel like it gives it a fake depth when you're listening to it. Some people hate it, but whatever. So yeah, I don't like the full fine. separation either. So yeah. that's that's what I have on here. You can see those two pots right there. Exactly. Uh, the actual those are the those are the mixing pots so that you can uh, mix the mono back into it and only get some slight separation. Um, the only problem I had with that was no matter how I tried to factor in the Famicom expansion audio, it never really worked right. It would always set the level. I mean, it's it's like adding resistance to something that you're changing the resistance with the pot so it's changing everything and one person i spoke to who is way more knowledgeable than i am said that the best way to accomplish that would be to put all three through a, a mini digital amplifier and then manipulate it that way either you know on the output side mm -hmm. or find an amp that could do that so i never went farther than that because i didn't have enough time and because you know the the high def nest does that built into itself you know a lot of the other stuff out there i think the mister can uh, I could mess with that stuff now. So, but I, I'm still really hoping that somebody solves that for all versions of the NES and Famicom, just because it's it's such a neat thing. In my once again, my opinion, people hate it with a passion, but just a little bit of separation. I, I just think it adds some very cool effects if you're listening through a stereo. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that, like, this board works. Like, I could sell this. the The problem is that there's there's that issue with uh, I haven't accounted for the Famicom expansion audio. And the other thing that I want to account for is I I just uh, – so the, the component video conversion circuit, 
is something that you can find a lot of really like cheap and easy circuits online that'll do it and you can just follow the diagram but i want to like be able to confirm that i've done it properly i don't just want to sell something that's like hey it, it does it you can plug it in if if you've gone to the the expense of buying an NES RGB, you're wanting the colors to come out right. That's kind of like the whole point. So doesn't put... Tim have a circuit that he offers for that as well? Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. does. Uh, it it just makes it a little. If I'm actually using the same pins, you can see the the right angle pins right here. I'm using those same pins that he mounts to, in order to do my board. So this is uh, replacing that. Okay. So you won't so you won't need his board and mine. This this will incorporate all of that. Oh, um the other thing the other thing that this board does is oh let me see. I gotta, oh yeah. So on the on the multi act connector, I also have this is my palette switch. Okay. It's a, it's, a little out of focus. A, Pull it back a tiny bit. Okay. It's almost. You have the, I think the Skype blur your background on or something. So sometimes it's perfect and sometimes it isn't. There you go. Pull it right there. (laughs) Okay. So it's just a momentary push button, and you push the button to switch palettes, and then if you hold the button for a second, it'll save it so that the next time you power it on, it'll come back to the same one. That is cool. So rather than rather than having one of those big, you know, three way, three way toggle switches or a slide switch or something like that. You can just do it with one of those little momentary push buttons. So anyway, I I actually just lucked out a week or two ago and I got my hands on a fluke digi- or a, a fluke video uh signal generator. Oh, cool. That does like reference reference quality TV signal generation. Mm-hmm. And it can do all of the different test patterns. It can do the, you know, the checkerboards. It does the color bars. It does the pluge. It does all all the stuff you would need for uh, for TV broadcast. It even modulates it to the the broadcast. Uh, you can you can tune it to a channel, mm-hmm. and it'll even modulate it to the the FM channel. That's neat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I don't need that. What what I'm able to use it for though is I can it outputs RGB and component video so i can output the reference quality rgb test signal then i can run it through my component video encoder measure my component video output and then compare it to their reference quality component video output and i can do that with all their different signals and all kinds of different stuff and be able to actually verify that i am outputting the right signal yeah that's um you know, that's something that, that on the Retro Roundtable we've talked a lot about is the conversion between RGB and component, and it's that's way over my head. I would never even attempt anything like that, so I'm mm-hmm. glad somebody's working on it, trying to get it perfect. Yeah, that was that was the big showstopper for me. Like, I'm I'm happy with the quality as it is, but I even I can see that some of the colors aren't right mm-hmm. at the moment. So I know I know my target. Uh, my target audience for something like this and my target audience for something like this is the kind of people who would buy it, see the problem and just kind of tear it to shreds on, on that account. So I want to make sure that if, if I'm selling something like this, that I get it right. That's awesome. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see something. Uh, I'm, I'm still taking classes at the moment. So hopefully 
in the next couple of months, once classes get out, I'll uh, I'll have some more time to play around with that, and maybe we'll maybe we'll see that in the next couple of months. Awesome. Have you been doing any more MSU One work or anything like that? Some. Uh, I ported my Link to the Past MSU One code over to the Link to the Past randomizer, mm-hmm. so that's incorporated into the randomizer. Um, I'm still working on Chrono Trigger. That's that's my big project that I will be. It'll be like a huge weight off my shoulder to finally finish that <laughs> one of these days. But every time I, I every time I feel like I'm getting close, it I, I realize that there's something I could do better. I think I've completely thrown out and rewritten the the assembly code like four different times now. <laughs> And I think the last time this, I talked to you, you said you were just finishing Chrono Trigger too. So, oh yeah, like the the, I really haven't done very much with it since the last video, partially because it's such a long game that when when I have to play test it, right? I think yeah. I played through it like three or four times back to back, and I just got so burned out that I was just like, I love this game, and I'm starting to hate it. And I don't want to hate this game because it's so good. Yeah. So I, I just totally had to, I had to, I had to step away from it. And it's a big enough project that I, before I can get back to it, I have to know that I can actually dedicate some time to it mm-hmm. because I have to like fully refamiliarize myself with code that I haven't touched in a couple of years and find all of my files. And, and yeah, like I need to know that I can sit down and, and really work on it before I even try to start. So. Now, if I remember correctly, that was using a soundtrack that's uh, that's not out for free that you have to pay for, right? There, There is a free one available as well, but yes, the primary one that I'm using is by a guy named Blake Robinson who right. sells the soundtrack, which unfortunately right now, he no longer sells it on Louder, which was the original source. He only sells it on iTunes, and iTunes does not support the FLAC format, which is what all of my scripts were, were targeted towards. Okay. And so that's another thing that I'll need to do at some point before calling it, you know, done. I probably am going to have to buy the buy the albums on iTunes, get the wave versions and then try and because they do offer a, a high quality wave file is probably the the one that I'll have to use. They offer their own ALAC format, but that's not something that I can decode with my tools. Mm-hmm. So so I have to get the wave version and then. Hopefully the wave version just matches up directly to the flack, but it might not. It might be at a different sampling rate. It might be slightly yeah. trimmed at the start or, or the end, and all of my, my trim points might be off because all of my scripts are down to the exact sample number. So all of these things could So that's something you know, that, I'm, that I might have to redo it all. Yeah, that's something I'd like to ask you about then. Um so I guess let me finish this conversation first, though. Uh, so for the goal would be then that people could buy this album and then drag and drop the folder into something or run a, a command line that just says start out star or whatever, something very basic that automatically converts this to the format needed. Uh, so the, the people who bought the album don't really need to do any more work other than run a script, and then it's just in the format needed and you put it in the folder. So since the last time we spoke, I had tried to mess with a couple of MSU One hacks, and I think I emailed you about one twice and completely forgot that I emailed you the first time, but I've never been able to get them to work right. I've never got the conversion Hmm. tools to work, and I'm 100% positive it's something that I'm doing wrong. Um, And 
I just, is there an easier way or an easier set of tools that you could suggest people go to? And I think the easiest way for anybody to start would be to obviously take an MSU one hack that's already completed and then just go through and make your own audio files and just rename them to whatever the name was for that hack. So that way you're, you're bouncing off somebody else's work. Somebody else has already hacked the ROMs and, and mapped it. And then you're just creating, ooh, just creating audio files for it. Um, mm-hmm. So is there a way like, uh, is so, there a, a start I think for that? For just the the audio files themselves, I actually have built my own tool. I don't know if I had done it at the at the time we did the last interview, but I have a tool called MSU PCM++. It's available on GitHub. And it has a bit of a steep learning curve because it's entirely command line based through a config file. So you don't have to do a ton of like long command line flags and all of that stuff. You, you just have to edit the config you want to. file every time you, you want. You edit the config file. Mm-hmm. But the, the big thing is that uh, it, it takes a bit of a paradigm shift for most people would start digging into things like they'd open up their file in Audacity and start editing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, and the thing with that is that if you go through that process and let's say you, you like trim the file and then you apply a filter and then you change the volume level and you do all these things. And then you realize that you really didn't want to do what you did back in step number two. You have to undo all the way back to that step and then redo everything after it. Oh, okay. Because every step actually changes the file. Is there some kind of script that could be made for audacity where you just drop in any file and it spits out what's needed for MSU one? Maybe, but I went another direction with it. And basically that's what my tool does is you create this config file and you say, okay, here, I want you to cut the file here. This is the end of the file. Here's where the loop point is. Here's the volume level I want. I want some fade in. I want some fade out. I want to do a crossfade on the loop because the loop point isn't quite seamless. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different things that you can do to it. You can You can change the tempo. You can... Uh, I don't even remember. You can combine multiple files. Either you can concatenate the file, so you have one file and then another file, or you can take two files and mix them together at the same time. Hmm. You can do all kinds of stuff with it. And then the idea is that I still use Audacity when I'm creating them, but all I use it for is finding the sample number. Like I say, like here's the loop point that I want. Now I'll go write that down in the config file. And the idea is that you should never actually modify your input file. You should be able to put it all in the in the config file and run it against the original the original input file that you first downloaded and it just does everything and spits out the output. Mm. Which then allows you to share that config file and anybody who downloads that same input file can run the script and get the same output file. Okay, that the Hearing you explain it like that makes a lot more sense as to why it's set up that way. So adding things. And then if you want to make any, if you want, like while you're working on it, if you want to make any changes, you're like, oh, I I want to fade in longer. I want to fade in shorter or whatever. You can just tweak the numbers and rerun it. And it starts from scratch from that original input file and redoes all of the steps. Mm -hmm. So you don't lose anything at any point. You don't have to remember whether or not you need to undo a whole bunch of stuff. It just starts from the clean file every time as as you're working so it's really helpful while you're while you're building them as well as then giving you the ability to share 
your your end result for things, especially like this Chrono Trigger thing, where if I download the input files from iTunes, if I download the WAV files, I could tell you to download those same WAV files from iTunes. You would get the same files, and all I would have to give you is this script, and then it would run, or this config file, and it would give you basically the same output file. Okay. It does apply. It does apply a slight random dither effect to it, which does cause some randomness. So you wouldn't get bit perfect outputs. Uh, you could disable that if you wanted to, but um, but essentially you would get the exact same output result. You know, if I ever have free time again, I'll go back and see because uh, the easier of the two projects I wanted is porting Grant Henry Stemage is Metroid mm-hmm. Metal for Super Metroid. I wanted to use the. I actually already did that. Did you? I actually already did. That. Yeah. Uh, Man. I'll send you. I'll send you a link. Yeah. Oh, please do. I'm so excited. And please, uh, yeah. if you post it, tag Stemage because he was freaking thrilled about that. I might. I might even send I, him an SD to. I, I did on. I, I. Yeah, I did on on Twitter when I posted it. I I don't remember. I I'm pretty sure I I tagged him on Twitter when I when I posted it. But yeah, oh. I I had to use a couple of other uh, a couple of other sources. Because I couldn't find a couple of the tracks, um, he hasn't. At some of the like ambiance tracks, he hasn't done. I think I used. Uh, have you heard of Dwayne and Brando? No. Oh uh, well, uh, they they did an album. I, I didn't use the one from their album. I think Brando went off and did his own solo album, and that was what I actually ended up using. But yeah, they they do like pair like kind of off-color uh parody tracks of okay. uh, a lot of video game music and stuff they they have an album it's called the uh lp of destruction i think i just wrote that down so i can go and, and look it up afterwards well that's yeah. awesome that's uh that's pretty yeah. cool stuff um the only other thing i wanted to do is somebody i'm forgetting the name but one developer uh used whatever tools are out there to hack super metroid but they did the exact maps as original metroid so not zero mission, not oh, the extra cool. stuff, but it was, mm-hmm. I mean, it was great. The only two problems with it is one weird thing where they use the same icon for two things and, um, uh, the, it saves automatically. So like if you die in Norfair, when you turn off, turn it off and back on again, where, where you first entered Norfair, you know, it auto saved. I thought that was a brilliant way around it. Cause obviously the original Metroid doesn't have saves. The only mm-hmm. bug is the same bug as all of the Metroid hacks, where the map, it doesn't remember what screens that you've been to. So like you have to, like, I would, as I'm playing through the game, before I shut it off for the night, actually, before I left any section, I would take, like, a cell phone picture of the screen to know which rooms I was in. Has that been fixed yet, might, by the way? I might have to I might have to look into that. Um, I hadn't heard of that particular Metroid hack before, but that sounds really interesting. And uh, that... That uh, map problem that you're describing is actually a problem that I fixed in the Super Metroid Link to the Past combo randomizer. Really? So I'm fairly I'm fairly familiar with that particular code, and I might have to go take a look at that. So there's one, ma- well, two major problems. Uh, the one problem is the the person who made it doesn't respond to anybody. So that's sad because I, I really, you know, I would love to help promote the work and get it out Where- there. Where did you find it in terms of not just where to get the patch, the, but I'll find you the link. Like if it's a forum or something like that. It was a forum, yeah. That, okay. But the music stinks. 
And I think the developer themselves just said, you know, hey, I, I just did what I could. I concentrated on the game. I wanted so badly to take, because there are some really high quality rips of the Famicom uh, Metroid soundtrack. I really mm-hmm. wanted the Famicom as an MSU file on that. I think that would have been the utmost, you know, the perfect way to experience that game know the the reimagining of the original and a lot of weird little things are in it like you can't shoot diagonally just like the original metroid so it's it's essentially like you're playing the original metroid but with the super metroid graphics um and the, and the physics controls, did, and did the they mess physics. with the physics they did okay. but it was fair so okay you, you know you couldn't play it as if you were playing super metroid but it wasn't as clunky as the original and I, sometimes people That's get really good. pissed when i say that yeah. you know it's Groundbreaking the, the game, original... but it's clunky. <laughs> yeah, the movement mechanics are probably one of the biggest reasons why I've never finished the original Metroid. You're just it's so slow and hard to jump onto platforms and stuff. And oh yeah. Try it, to play Craig yeah. on the original when you're used to all the other two D versions of it. It's mm. yeah. I have to I will absolutely send you that as soon as we're done, because that was one that just that struck me so hard when I played that because I was just this was the first time anybody's ever really done that and there was a few like uh zero something mission uh, i'll bring up the page super super zero mission i've played at least one version of that i know they've put out a bunch of versions with really? changes over time i liked it it was it wasn't the same map though it was inspired mm-hmm. by and you know yeah. some parts were unnecessarily hard i guess um, i have never finished it because there was one particular shine spark that i could not I couldn't do it after after you beat uh, Mother Brain. There's a shine spark that I cannot pull off, and I need to go back and check if they've like put out an update or something and changed that particular spot. But yeah, so yeah. I played that five years ago, four years ago, or something. I'm just on the page now. It's just retro RGB forward slash Super Metroid ROM hacks, and that was one of my notes in Zero uh, Super Zero Mission, and I remember. When I played it, I remember taking the save file, moving that to an emulator, using save states to beat it. Like, it's cheating, but it's, you know, I still played it. I didn't, like, use a Game Genie hack and cheat through it, but I definitely (laughs) used save states uh, and still cheated. And then moved that save file back to the SD to SNES and continue the game. But there were two specific parts of the game that I thought were absolutely ridiculous and clearly designed by people that were only using emulation and save states in order to play the game, which is cool, but I, I predominantly, you know, original hardware for these things. Um, but, yeah, it was called Retroid, and it was on mm-hmm. uh, metroidconstruction.com, and when I just clicked on the link now, uh, even though this used to be a page, it said that hack has been rejected. Sorry. So I don't know what oh, happened thanks. to it. But I, I'll, I'll send you the ROM, and hopefully we can figure out who, who came up with it. Because if you could have that with the map fixed and the Famicom version of the Metroid soundtrack on there, I think that would be people's go-to. And heck, who knows what else people could do. Maybe you can get Vitor in there to mm-hmm. hack in some SA1 animation just for the hell of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, yeah. thank you as always for, for doing these things. Uh, hopefully I'll do your voice justice this time and not screw it up in post. <laughs> uh, but I will leave links to your Tindy page, to your Twitter account. And is there any other ways that, uh, any other places people could follow your work? Uh, I do have a Discord server, so I could send you a link to that. Please do. And 
mostly I, I'm active on things like the retro gaming server as well uh, and uh, Smoke Monsters server. But if people are just wanting to get a hold of me, especially uh, if you have any troubleshooting issues with any of my mods and you just need to, to ask me questions or whatever, probably my, my Discord server would be the easiest place to do that. Cool. Well, you know, thank you for all the work that you've done and given to the community over the years, all the free work. Um, you know, I'm glad that you're making a little bit of money off of the Super Game Boy stuff so we could see what else that you could come up with. Uh, so we're definitely, I'm going to keep in touch whether you like it or not, and we'll probably do another one of these in the, you know, sometime in the future. So thanks again. All right.